Good afternoon, uh, everybody. Uh, hi. <laughs> uh, I'm Matt Waters, and uh, this is a, another edition of the Show You Tell Reading Series. Uh, it's actually our one-year anniversary. Uh, which thank, for, thank you uh, for making this happen, everybody. Uh, thanks for your support. Um, so today we have Aaron Puchigian. All right, pretty good. Uh, Prince McNally and uh, Donald Kennedy reading. Uh, I like to, to, to take uh, the first couple minutes to read something tangential uh, to the occasion. Um, so I had this poem. Uh, I also had one of mine, a short, a short poem I, I wrote after New Year's uh, that I'm going to share with you. Uh, so this is called The Death of the Old Year uh, by Lord Alfred Tennyson. Full knee-deep lies the winter snow, and the winter winds are wearily sighing. Toll ye the church bell, sad and slow, and tread softly and speak low, for the old year lies a-dying. Old year, you must not die, you came to us so readily, you lived with us so steadily, old year, you shall not die. He lieth still, he doth not move, he will not see the dawn of day, he hath no other life above. He gave me a friend and a true love, and the new year will take him away. Old year, you must not go, so long you have been with us, such joy as you have seen with us, old year, you shall not go. He frothed his bumpers to the brim, a jollier, a jollier year we shall not see. But though his eyes are waxing dim, and though his foes speak ill of him, he was a friend to me. Old year, you shall not die, we did so laugh and cry with you. I've half a mind to die with you, old year, if you must die. He was full of joke and jest, but all his merry quips are old. To see him die across the waste, his son and heir doth ride post-haste, but he'll be dead before. Every one for his own, the night is starry and cold, my friend, and the new year blithe and bold, my friend, comes up to take his own. How hard he breathes over the snow. I heard just now the crowing cock, the shadows flicker to and fro, the cricket chirps, the light burns low, tis nearly twelve o'clock. Shake hands before you die, old year, we'll dearly rue for you. What is it we can do for you? Speak out before you die. His face is growing sharp and thin. Alack, our friend is gone. Close up his eyes, tie up his chin. Step from the corpse and let him in. That standeth there alone and waiteth at the door. There's a new foot on the floor, my friend, and a new face at the door, my friend. A new face at the door. He didn't call him Lord for nothing, right? Yeah, Lord Alfred Tennyson. <laughs> um, yeah, so yeah, I usually um, don't do this, but I, I, I wrote this um, on January 1st, and I uh, just wanted to share it with you. Uh, it's called a Landscapist. No, no, it's perfect. Let's do reverie this new year, like an Irish landscapist in Paris, from Cork, on absinthe, brushing his mother's gossamer eyelashes onto the general snows of his hillsides. Let's be how we are at last century's turning, faraway bodies, the discarded painting, a romantic stranger's imagination, blotched paws holding the other inside winter.
Thank you, guys. Thanks. Thanks. Um, so yes, we're going to have uh, Donald Kennedy on uh, to, to lead us off. Uh, Donald Kennedy was born in Brooklyn. He went to the NYU Stern School of Business. Uh, sorry about that. I kind of messed the time. <laughs> uh, he worked on Wall Street five years in the short-term securities market. Uh, his last firm was Lehman Brothers. Uh, left to become a photographer, photographic career began assisting and studio managing a number of the top photographers in New York City. Bert Stern, Bill King, Pete Turner, and Irving Penn, amongst others, as well as a number of the photographers from the Magnum Photos Group. He moved to Paris and worked there for a number of French, Italian, German, and English fashion magazines before returning to the U.S. In New York City, his work appeared editorially for several Hearst and Condé Nast magazines. Advertising clients included Saks Fifth Avenue, Revlon, and Lancome. Fine arts photography work began in Paris and has continued throughout his photographic career and he's an activist. Uh, thanks for being here, Don. Thank you. This is a, um, a series of excerpts from a piece that I wrote that's a larger piece, and it was okay, as we were. Um, anyway, it's a larger piece that will be, it is finished but I've excerpted a bunch of this for uh, the reading today. I just began as a writer, so you have to indulge me just a little bit if you would not mind. Uh, the title is called Men's Room. 25 years passed, another time, and most importantly, assuredly, another world. The characters are Yvonne Dier, creative director at Yves Saint Laurent, Joseph, art director at Yves Saint Laurent, um, and Captain Moula, an esteemed captain of a most worthy craft, and me, photographer, author. Me, what the hell? Directly behind, seated on one of what appeared to be a small mountain of various kinds of trunks, a New Orleans flecked baritone voice responded. Theatrically impatient, but head still buried behind an open times of India, what now? In the midst of the vast grand salad of Bombay's Victoria Terminus Railroad Station's lunch hour commuter scrum, a wildly incongruous, potentially incendiary drama was rapidly unfolding before us. Two male heads, close, smiling. One man, a sliver of slender mahogany, bordering on frail, barely dressed in the mufti of tattered cotton shorts, headscarf, and rubber sandals. Kit for the Army of Railway, luggage to untouchables, the porters. The other man, a head taller, mildly out of shape, but definitely handsome, attired in tropically chic mode française, head to toe. Animated conversation, heads bobbing in cheerful affirmation, and Francais now drapes an arm over the thin shoulders of the smaller Indian man. Smiling, both cheerily stride toward the door marked men's room. Oh my God, what the hell? Wheeling around to inquire of Joseph once again, I caught sight over his shoulder of four Indian national police striding very purposely towards us. Not a smile among them. We were easy to spot, actually, an odd group of Westerners holding suspiciously like either a film or photo crew. In cinema-obsessed Bombay in those days, always a mini-occasion. 
from the rippling ocean of Harriet commuters, innumerable stares, mostly curious, but generally sh just shyly smiling. The oncoming police were quite another matter, struggling to wield while running their ancient well-cared-for World War II carbines and freshly resplendent in their mismatched uniforms, these professionally ferocious national police were undeniably heading straight for us. He's taking that porter into the men's room. The barely discernible head still remained buried behind the times, but the tone of the baritone voice shifted radically from annoyance to joyous. Excellent, headline, New York Times. Preternaturally priapic Tonkibon, creator and director of YSL, arrested for solicitation in Bombay's Victoria Terminus Railroad Station men's room. Yvonne is currently luxuriously residing in the local slammer. Perfect. For the hopelessly debauched, prepare yourself. Irony is in the wind. As mentioned, one Joseph, Yvonne's art director. He and I had gotten off to what could be generously described as a rocky start, a hair from coming to blows. Best example, my tryout shoot. Previously scheduled, but also designated to determine whether all promised in my slim portfolio could be delivered in the real-time scrum of a high-concept fashion shoot. On that New York City photo shoot day, Joseph made it perfectly clear as a new boy I was to be the principal target of his unrelenting skating wit. Ergo, a purposeful nightmare. Him fleeing about the interior of our location van, chatting up and checking out all the male models, interspersing it all with innumerable pithy asides to the crew always making certain I'd be just barely within earshot. Speaking some kind of code known to all in the crew, but essentially obtuse to my looking to the seeing ears, tried to ignore it. My assistants and I intently focusing instead on preparing for the first shot. Lots at stake for me, obviously, in that moment, debuting my photographic career. Hence, ignored Joseph's asides, but definitely was not amused and was certainly not to be forgotten. Back home in New Orleans, notorious Ninth Ward, from whence Joseph sprang, his behavior would be defined as dancing on my last nerve. True that. The first actual image of the day was a black and white Polaroid I shot of Peter, top model in the biz and one of Yvonne and Joseph's friends and favorites. I had found a shaft of light cutting across a nearby stone wall, placed Peter for a close-up within the light running diagonally across his very expensive, perfectly chiseled cheekbones. Excuse me, just one second. Ah. Uh, uh, sorry. <laughs> cold. Place Peter for a close-up with the light running diagonally across his very expensive, perfectly chiseled cheekbones. Had him dressed in a midnight blue suit, cream-colored dress shirt, and an indigo blue tiny polka dot silk tie. Very sculptural, flawless light, my photo style to perfection. I entered the location van and very casually tossed the cold right of my shot on the table, where Yvonne and Joseph were sitting, dishing the fashion biz dirt with others in the crew. A sudden lull settled on the chatter as a smirking Joseph instantly snatched the Polaroid and held it up to the location van's window to have a good look. Primed for weeks to deliver a what could you have been thinking verdict to Yvonne, Joseph was now unexpectedly silent. Then from Joseph, a low whistle and wow. He kept staring at the photo. Yvonne grabbed the Polaroid out of his hands. Give it to me. We are so behind schedule, I have no time for this. A brief look at the Polaroid, the barest of smirks, and then, of course, what's your team? Hmm. His smirk remained in place as he looked sternly at Joseph. Let's go, let's go. Get Peter in the first suit. Yvonne brushed past me without a glance, imperiously marching to the back of the huge location van. The stylist was holding up the first suit to be photographed, waiting near the steamer for Yvonne's final inspection. Yvonne turned ever so slightly, 
with a perfectly trained Comédie Française gesture and attitude for all to hear, alors, franchement, hmm. Translation to talent and crew, receive and absorb. When one has the breeding, exquisite refinement and taste, not to mention modesty, comme de survivant, one always chooses wisely and impeccably. Hence, the quality of this Polaroid was predictably sublime. And the most important point from this new photographer he had chosen, and thus already knew it would be wonderful. Pas de surprise, vite vite. Yvonne's unusually loud admonition ginned up an explosive strum inside the band. Models rapidly dressing, groomers stretching to catch some stray hair on one of these very expensive heads, and photo assistants springing out the door laden with photo gear. Turning abruptly, I suddenly found myself standing face to face with Joseph, less than a baguette between us. Pissed was not even remotely close to my seething anger. Grasping that fact instantly, Joseph immediately and rapidly spoke first. A syrupy southern, what can I possibly do to help you? was punctuated by a huge attempt at a disarming smile. Joseph came to live another day, barely. By the by, precisely who is or tragically was Joseph? Inquiry. Attempt to describe the predictable tragedy derived from meeting a hard-scrabble Ninth Ward New Orleans mother, according to Joseph, I do dearly love, love my white trash Southern mama, with, for a father, an illegally emigrated hardcore Sicilian professional gambler, DNA scramble still unclear? Hang tight. Response, this spooky crapshoot of genetics delivered a family of five children, each one of whom endowed with a card-carrying, full-blown Mensa IQ, and Joseph being the lovingly spoiled baby of the clan and their only gay child. After winning a full ride to both MIT and Columbia, Joseph also parenthetically had a unique perspective on, quote, higher education, unquote. Joseph, quote, of course, academia was death by boredom once I had seduced the captain of the Columbia swimming team. En plus, given I had already read literally everything suggested in the lit quick syllabus in Columbia, by the time I was 16, I mean, what could possibly be the point? Thus, he preferred a somewhat less orthodox education and career path. Trading on his Caravaggio bad boy looks and killer charm, in record time he established himself in a renowned career as a male street hustler in, at that time, a very seedy pre-AIDS Times Square. As Joseph described it one day in a particularly revelatory mood, quote, I met this trick at the bath one night who curated something or other at the Whitney, can't remember precisely what. Anyway, we both knew, of course, that I had an extremely refined aesthetic. Ergo, as for his suggestion, I took a couple of semesters at Cooper Union. Et voila, here I am, world. Directed de l'artistique Baudon Française. Pourquoi pas, sugar? Go up. The jungle of those astonishing days was always a cool sanctuary of shade, often seemingly silent from other noises other than that of armies of exotic winged soloists working on a repertoire of astonishing orchestrations. Yvonne's description, perfect, and it was unwept. Day's end, I returned to my room for a treasured interview. Beat from the heat, I toss all that day's Polaroids onto a beautiful embroidered white bedspread. With only the soundtrack of the crashing waves below, a lassie in hand, I commence laying out that day's work. A chiaroscuro color collage would emerge, blazing against the bedspread. An oscillation of fiery light and mysterious shadow, a symphony of light. Closed look, you should part in fashion world expression, fabulous. Models equally inspired by our surroundings really stepped up their game as well. For two weeks, I reveled my way through this unendingly group of jaw-dropping, inspiring photographic revelations. Reed thin rice farmers stealing huge, black, lumbering water buffaloes plodding through terraced rice paddies. 
completes a perpetual laughing or sometimes just staring beautiful local children. Rare golden cobras menacingly slithering through the parched weed-colored grass. Crowds of eye-numbingly exotic, acid-colored, sorry-clothed Indian women shyly scurrying off in their daily grooming tasks. Gypsy women, languid, idling, but scrupulously observing all their gold jewelry flashing and blinking in the blazing sun. Meanwhile, it seemed all the women passing through were trailing scents of fresh jasmine embedded in their flowered hair decorations. All that scented exquisiteness was, nonetheless, woven within the constant cloud and stench of burning cow dung. India, you gotta love it. Chapter 9. Yvonne had booked the Goa back to Bombay leg of our trip with typical alarm. Apparently, there is some of these ancient P&O converted freighters, refugees from some Somerset Mourn pot boiler. They made the Goa Bombay route via the Raven Sea, one boat leaving in each direction at the same time every day. He had booked the entire first class section on the upper deck for us, guaranteeing a blissful collapse for 24 hours. A pampered, calm respite, Tudelman Parfait. Prior to Panagene, Pete and Noah Steamer's morning departure and viewed some height from the bridge of our freighter, the dock appeared to quiver with ravishing sari colors, lime greens, hot pinks, acid yellows, indigo blues. The simplest cotton or chenille silk, it didn't matter. This brilliance in full sunlight, always astonishing. Once all my gear had been boarded, our esteemed and initially charming Captain Mula, a towering five foot two in his spotless tropical navy whites, complete with appropriate white knee socks, introduced himself. Introductions completed, our esteemed captain had, with all prerequisite elaboration, with just the mildest air of condescension, as befitting a station, of course, invited me to join him on the bridge. The view from our highly polished antiquity was of a thousand very festive goings on the dock, gathering to wish bon voyage to one or several of their friends or relatives who were about to board the ship's second or third class decks of the freight. Lots of hugs, tears, and laughter. Ivan Ivan, after obviously having consulted his worn references, arrived impeccably attired for the voyage. Panama hat, squathed in cotton scarves, scarves, and perfectly appropriate cap. He also joined us on the bridge. Amusingly, it seemed to mildly annoy our pop and jade captain, but no matter. Yvonne and I together leaned over the rail, absorbing the exotica of the drama in the dock below. Pulling him one of his scarves, I love them so much, India. The oppressed third world masses, provoking him just a touch. Yvonne smiled into a frown as he turned to look directly at me. Seriously, you know, I worry for you. Can't see how beautiful all this is. Why you need pretend? You're some sort of Brooklyn communist? I'm teasing. Clearly relieved my aesthetics, clearly clearly relieved that my aesthetics, he obviously admired, had not been irretrievably compromised, Yvonne quickly returned to his usual smiling self, gazing back down at the dock. He quickly grabbed my arm. Look, look, look at that woman by the, what you call it, with those two babies. So beautiful. We watched it all for several more minutes, and then the curtain rose on yet another inevitable comique française drama, comme Monsieur Pierre. This time, the Indian Road Company made all the arrangements. Captain Mula, Monsieur, where's the rest of your crew? Only the baggage has arrived. We must must leave in precisely 15 minutes. Where are they? Yvonne suddenly looks around, now noticing that only myself, my assistant, and the stylist besides him have actually boarded. Yvonne, confidently to Captain Mula, they will be here. Yvonne now turns to me very anxiously and out of earshot of Captain Mula. Where's Joseph and the boys, really? They left the hotel before us all, and now shaking his fist menacingly in the air. If they do not arrive, I had no answer for Yvonne, but instead walked over to Captain Muller for a quick word. 
Unfortunately, he was in full authoritative mode, organizing the final stages of getting underway, barking orders to his crew below, and very obviously in no mood to indulge any spoiled Westerners, first-class passengers or not. Uh, uh, Captain, he cut me off before another word. Captain Muller sternly to me. You sail, correct? Then explain this to your colleague. We have a big tide here. It will leave with us in no later than 15 minutes. If we do not leave with it, we will be aground and in serious trouble, as you know well. Therefore, we will leave in precisely 15 minutes, with your crew or without them. I am now very, very busy, so please excuse me. Hmm, I thought. That went well. Ten minutes to go, clock ticking. Yvonne was now frantically pacing the upper deck from whose height one could look far into the town streets adjacent to the pier. As the minutes raced by, his agitated pacing caught the attention of the crowd on the dock below, many of whom now began to gaze curiously at this Westerner who was in Congress leading to their cheerful bon voyages, having a meltdown moment. Yvonne, you know I kill him. I told Joseph this morning, make sure all the boys get to the ship on time. Fresh mom, bad, bad. More frustrated French phrases trailed behind as he continued his pacing more furiously with every minute. I snatched a pair of binoculars from the bridge and scanned the town for taxis or a sprinting crew on foot. Nothing. Two minutes to go. The deck crew began noisily retracting the gangplank. That really jolted Yvonne. He halted his pacing and let out a small yelp. With all their friends and relatives boarded, the crowd on the dock was now almost totally focused on the clearly more interesting drama unfolding on the upper deck. I shot a quick look towards Captain Muller. His return looked to me signaled silently, silently but unequivocally, don't even think about it. Obviously, the bow lines were beginning to be loosened, then cast off. Wait! Yvonne and I yelled almost simultaneously, careening through the town at high speed several blocks away with three multi-painted going taxis hurtling recklessly towards the pier. An arm outside one of the taxi windows was waving furiously. The crowd on the pier rapidly moved aside, giving room to the tire screeching arriving taxis. Everyone on the dock now looked somewhat pleased to be fully integrated into this spontaneous performance piece. I looked again at Captain Muller. Not happily, but resigned, he halted the casting off of the stern lines. Check, but not mate. All the taxis shuddered to a halt, shuddered to a halt, and Joseph and the models leapt out. Now what? Standoff, no gangplank, too far to jump onto the lower deck, and Captain Muller was making no moves towards reinstating anything. Joseph alertly seized the moment. He yelled something to the models, and they all ran for the stern lines. Always in good shape, Joseph began shimmering up the thick stern line toward the rear lower deck, where the line was secured. All the male models rapidly followed suit. After all six boarded, the stern lines were finally cast off. Yvonne, meanwhile, was of course riveted, dramatically clutching his heart while watching the unfolding drama. When the last model was safely on board, the crowd on the pier began to spontaneously and enthusiastically applaud. Yvonne, now totally overcome, looks out at the crowd and bursts into tears. So moved by it all, he began, he began this pantomime of weeping, laughing, waving, throwing kisses to the crowd like some demented, barnstorming American politician. To me, I love them. To the crowd, I love you, I love you. J'adore, je t'en passe très fort. On the pier, the crowd bizarrely responded even more enthusiastically with their own waves, followed by their inexplicable kisses tossed towards Yvonne. Yvonne on the stage, the parting goer, loudly delivers his loving adoration to all the festive goings, all the Indians in general, and the entire Asian continent. Why not? Yvonne's stated plans for murdering Joseph and the models postponed on account of love. Meanwhile, back to the Bombay Railroad Terminus, where we left off at the beginning of this tome, much to the disappointment of those who wished for a moment of exotic debauchery, 
analog homage, a fashion moment instead. Unlike all wonderful things it ended, and more precisely, tragically ended for us, our bizarre alchemy to the outside world, the deep friendship and empowerment, the gay aesthetic French aristocrat, the former male hustler from Times Square, and the photographer, a straight radical from Brooklyn. Only I remember. Thank you, Donald. And I'm, I'm really blown away that you say you're, you're kind of new uh, to, to writing, right? And um, my my first question is, um, what drew you to a, a memoirist uh, form uh, to, to kind of write about your life? What, what drew you to do that? Actually, <clears throat> is this working? <laughs> um, actually, the references that I see around me all the time from the 80s, which is where this took place, in music and fashion, and young people seem to have this incredible affection for it all, is kind of so amazing, because you're walking around, you're looking at all this, you're hearing all this, it's all the songs you knew. It's, the fashion looks so familiar. And I began to think about what was it about that time that made it so special? And I think it's like the 60s, there are periods of time in our history in America, the 20s, I mean, you can go back historically and find them all, where moments really happened, and they had a significant impact going forward. And the young people these days have such an affection for that, and it, to me it's, it's kind of simple. They are so burdened with what they have been left with. I mean, the planet is collapsing, they've got student debt up to their eyeballs, they don't know what they're gonna do for a job. It's not a great time. And we have this, whatever you want to call this, Bulgarian in the White House. I mean, it's just inexplicable. Anyway, um, he, that creates a time where I can see they have an affection for another time when things were less complicated, when things were possible and less burdensome. And yeah, it's almost, I mean, your, your story kind of like fits into that, uh, making that career transition to photography. Um, in a way, you know, like that's the interesting thing about it. Well, well, that's that's exactly what this is really. That's the genesis. People felt the possibility of things in those days, and to turn around when I walked in to tell the partner who I worked for, Lehman Brothers, that I wanted to leave to become a photographer, he suggested that I go to a drug rehab clinic and get trade that. <laughs> I mean, it was incomprehensible to him that anybody wanted to leave this epicenter of greed and go and do something that just satisfies their soul and heart. And um, that's at the root of it. The, the remainder of this story gets much darker because like most things, whatever is good, there's always a consequential price to pay. And there were some huge prices to pay at the end of that period. And um, that's the finality of this in the epilogue. And there's a number of chapters in that. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. Thanks for being here. Uh, Prince, you get to go. Yeah, you get to go, man. Are you here? <laughs> okay. Uh, so, our next reader is going to be Prince McNally. Um, I'll choose. Yeah, I'm just adjusting the levels there. Um, okay. Uh, I think this is the fight for the readers. <laughs> I was telling you before, man. I turned into my enemy microphones. All right. 
an emerging voice in American poetry, as well as the international poetry scene, uh, Prince A. McNally is a Brooklyn-born poet, writer, philosopher, and activist who utilizes his voice as a platform to speak for the voiceless. Though quite eclectic, his poetry and prose focus mainly on the human condition, social injustice, and the marginalization of people of color, the elderly, the poor, and the homeless here in the U.S. and abroad. His verse is a constant appeal for society to awaken, to rethink, and reshape its destiny. Prince's work has appeared in numerous literary magazines, blogs, and anthologies throughout the U.S. and abroad, such as The Dissonant Voice, Tuck Magazine, Glow Mag in India, The World Poetry Open Mic Poets Anthology, The National Beat Poets Anthologies, Beatitude, We Are Beat, as well as the forthcoming Italian literary magazine, American Poets, and others, where he receives a brief write-up along with a translated version of his work. That's awesome. Uh, congrats for that. He is a member of the Academy of American Poets, the National Beat Poetry Foundation, as well as the Brooklyn Poets, a student of Nigerian Dashon, uh, Nigerian Dashon and Buddhism. Thank you. Thank you. Prince prides himself on being a rebel with a cause and effect. His widely anticipated chapbook, Prelude to Serenity, is due out in the spring of 2020. Thanks for being here, Prince, and take care. How you doing, everybody? Wow. Any snaps and claps. I find it so wonderfully invigorating how something seeming so minuscule as the sound of finger snacks and claps can breathe such life into the quiet of a dimly lit room, awakening our slumbering spirits. During open mics and poetry slams, the acoustic reverie of our fingertips snapping our hands, clapping with a most joyful synergy and energy that seems to scream through the echoes as they bounce off the skin of barren walls, the pitta sound of tiny feet, serendipitously reminiscent of cats dancing on a hot tin roof. The soulful clipping of their paws reminds me of a sweet summer's rain cooling off our sun-scorched spirits. And when the lights go down, no one makes a sound as the poet takes to the mic, shining their light upon the dimly lit room filled with the empty silence of strangers who are all seeking to connect to a vibe that moves them. For when they are truly moved, we lose ourselves in the quiet briefly escaping our troubled lives, our struggles, and our pain, immersing ourselves in the moment, transfixed upon the hypnotic cadence of the poet's verse, reading our thoughts through the pattern of words spoken, gently brushing against our ears so elegantly. We eventually find ourselves holding our breath in the palms of our chests, collectively closing our eyes as if holding a candlelit vigil to a synchronized silence when no one makes a sound, for we are compelled to just listen to the velvety texture of words falling blissfully from the poet's lips like divine libations of rain, but that's not rain you hear. That's the sound of a poet eagerly pouring their heart and soul into the mouth of a microphone, filling the quiet of a dimly lit room of strangers with an intimate piece of themselves. 
And though we may be strangers for a brief moment in time, in a dimly lit room we become one, a surrogate family of artists, spiritually connected by a common bond, a common thread, a common struggle, holding us all together, allowing us to truly see each other in the quiet of a dimly lit room. And as the poet takes, upon, takes us upon their journey, we close our eyes, inhaling the poet's every breath, their every word, and every nuance. And in turn, we hold our breath in the palms of our chest, exhaling with a roaring thunder of shouts, finger snaps and claps that jointly echo off the skin of barren walls. As I rip this clip of metal formations from my thought patterns, Brain cells are ringing all around Saturn while back in the hood, rough riders are barking like rock riders. Prolific rhymers are catching Alzheimer's in my peeps. A mad illin from this unrehearsed verse that I be spilling with the greatest of these, like killer bees be slinging honey. Do you feel me, money? So microphone check me and please don't test me because my thoughts are deep throating like Monica Lewinsky. I'm not Bill Clinton, so don't go acting fruity trying to impeach me over this silly chit-chatter because it really doesn't matter, you see. Misogyny, I'm not whipped. It's merely a waste of my gift, so I aim my pen towards the positive tip of the iceberg named Slim. Shady though be the hood, but it's all good, for I am the phoenix rising, uplifting the downtrodden like the homeless, begging for social change. A computer whiz, hacking into brains. I am a political prostitute, giving the government head trips to the outer limits of my subconscious so they can truly see from 909 what it feels like to be demoralized, socialized, utterly despised. See how ghetto babies never cry. Oof. They merely cry when they are hungry and when shit needs to be changed. world, I didn't come quietly, for the, as the pediatrician violently pulled me head first from the universe of my mother's womb, that first breath of air caused my lungs to burn and tremble as I cried in 17-syllable haiku. Now, mind you, I wasn't crying because I was afraid, hungry, or disoriented. None of those baby reasons. I was merely announcing my arrival, putting the world on notice that I am here. I am here to be the dissident voice, that voice of change that I was sent here to be. You see, I was born to be a poet, a rebel-rousing radical who proudly wears the heart of a revolutionary upon his sleeves. Through the 
through the language of poetry, I speak tirelessly for the voices, utilizing my voice so they could be heard and eventually seen by the masses. With my every opportunity, I challenge the powers that be whom even threatened to kill me. And so I told them, go ahead and kill me. So I speak even louder when I'm gone. For the poets never truly die. Our struggle, our single purpose here on this earth is to live eternally in the hearts and minds of our readers so when we die, we'll remain alive in spirit and whenever our persecutors think of us, they will hear the trembling echoes of our words haunting the halls of their souls like the ghost of martyrs. I am breath, breathing life into stone, colored in salt, undertones of purple and quistic eclectic soul. I am Jimi Hendrix, paying homage to the cosmos with funky guitar licks, smoking purple haze, setting the world ablaze while redefining the matrix of rock music. I am Superman, supernova, superfly, soaring through the sky. High on electric blue bars, I am love song sublime, serendipitously sung by Solomon. I am an urgent gust of wind, massaging your earlobes with deep intention. So listen to the soft, gentle breeze of your intuition, singing softly to the shadow silhouettes, dancing gayfully to the vibration of a distant drummer. I am the second coming, the second wind of your last breath, hanging on the edge of tomorrow. I am Picasso. Firing the canvas of the future with brushstrokes of inspiration, so don't be afraid of dying. For death is just an illusion, an impossibility. For you are infinity. Just close your eyes and dive into the white, waiting arms of your divine future as if it were water. Just swim that great blue ocean of you, waiting to begin anew this most splendid journey of self-discovery and self-expression. They're all yours to proclaim, because it's a new day, a new day of life. A new day of living, a new day of beginnings, a new day to finish what you have started. Despite her being a full-fledged so-called American citizen, she has been made to feel like an alien, a second-class citizen, if you will. In fact, she'd be quite wealthy if she had just one penny for every time someone said to her, what are you? Her usual smart-ass reply being, I'm a human being, what are you? Embarrassed, they sheepishly replied, sorry, but what I meant to say is, what is your nationality? As if her appearance was so un-American. I guess, judging by the melanin in her skin, her deep brown eyes, that proud, prominent nose, and those lips 
full like clouds of rain and thunder. There was absolutely no way she could possibly be mistaken for an American, a Mexican maybe. Though her features were clearly quite indigenous with an elongated chin and chiseled cheekbones as sharp as mountain ridges, the blood of her ancestors still alive, still flowing like a river of wild salmon running freely through her veins. Occasionally the ancestors speak to her through her whispers in the wind reminding her who she is so she in turn could remind others of the indigenous people who first roamed this land, the true Americans who were here for centuries long before gentrification, long before the white settlers came with their ships, their guns, their Bible, and their Jesus, before there ever was a United States of America, before your presidents and politicians, before your government, before your tyranny and greed, before the slave trade, before eminent domain, before the railroads came, before the gold rush, before black gold, your tobacco companies, big pharma, before your soldiers and your wars, before your systemized genocide of people of color, before your walls, before Wall Street, before Walmart, before the miseducational system, before you forced vaccinations, sterilizations, ethnic cleansing before you nearly wiped us out with your diseases like syphilis, the measles, chicken pox, and smallpox, before AIDS, Ebola, and cancer, before the Pony Express in the U.S. Post Office, before the atomic bombs, before your dot-coms, before the internet, before Google, before Amazon, Twitter, and Instagram, before your ghettos your housing projects and reservations before segregation and redlining, before your liquors, your drugs, and your gambling, before your luxury high-rise casinos, hotels, and condos, before your cars and trucks, your pipelines, mines, your factories polluted our streams, our ponds, our lakes, oceans, and skies resulting in climate change of which you somehow still deny. The indigenous tribal nations were here, living in peace and harmony with nature, the spirit of the ancestors still watching over these holy grounds where their blood still nurtures the land that was stolen from them. Not just by way of trickery and greed, but by an inherent sense of privilege and entitlement which led to a blind arrogance which eventually gave way to a deep-seated hatred and racist bigotry, causing one group of people to devalue and to dehumanize and to slaughter another. Change the move a little bit. Your mind? Can I do a little poem? Yeah. It's called Sweet Yesterdays. Are we destined to live our lives devoid of any true semblance of love, 
settling for generic brands of relationships just so we won't have to be alone. Baby, come home. And I will give you sun rays on your rainy days. For my love for you could never be cliche. Just come back to me. For without you, I can no longer see the stars. For you are the light of me. And if I could whisper in the ears of destiny, I would speak of sweet yesterdays, reminiscing our past love way back when. And if only we could do it again. I would worship it like a religion, train this misery into submission, you see. Life for me is inspired by hope, and so I create deja vu and recycle dreams, create and recycle dreams, sleepwalking this mirrored existence in the realms of destiny when suddenly I awake and I'm crying because you're no longer here. You're no longer here. You're no longer Murmurs of the happy murmurs of busy bumblebees buzz. She is the silent stream of psychedelic consciousness flowing through the blue ocean of my veins. She is dope. The heroine of my story I could never resist, and though I have tried to turn away, I am compelled to watch as her seductive light dances to the rhythmic shade of soulful silhouettes lifting the shadows from their darkness. You could say she's sexy, for she is the concubine who gives birth to my melodic musings. So heady and amorous is her scent, much like that of the naked lady Amaryllis, a sweet aphrodisiac. She keeps me guessing, keeps me wanting, keeps me wanting more, for she is so cool, a bit of a mystery arousing my deepest curiosity, for she only exposes the tip of the iceberg, keeping her head just above water. A Buddhist she prefers to wade in the middle way, refusing to sink or swim. Ever the optimist, her cup never runneth over, always remaining half full. She is the hypnotic wordplay of hip-hop. 
I can remember back when our love affair began with a gold chain and a medallion swinging back and forth like a pendulum. She has cast me beneath her spell. She moves with a rhythm and blues that flows like a cool glass of water that goes down smooth like jazz. She's groovy like Ella, sultry like Billy, like Miles Morgan Coltrane. She makes me so damn dizzy. The way her fondling fingertips tickles the ivies of my spinal cord places me in a spiraling spin that sends the oxygen rushing through my brain so fast I'm flying high on electric blue bars. My, my, my thoughts are flying high on electric blue bars. My thoughts are suddenly rising like the sun, shining its light upon the faces of weeping willows that suddenly smile through the jubilant sound of ringing echoes resonating from the caves of melanated honeycombs filled with the happy murmurs of busy bumblebees buzzing. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Prince, uh, for sharing your work. Thank you for having me. Oh, absolutely. This is great, great content. So, in uh, reading your bio and having uh, conversed with you uh, previously, um, what I really wanted to ask you is uh, your your kind of relationships with the uh, open mics and kind of uh, the beginnings of that and um, how whether you feel it, it influences your writing and your style as a reader, which is um, uh, very performative and uh, very engaged with the audience. So I'm wondering if uh, there's a connection there between that and uh, other open mics uh, that you've been through. Um, I actually just started doing open mics this past, what, last year? Yeah. I started a few years back, and, and that kind of, due to tragedy, I stopped writing altogether. So I haven't written for, it's, it's been like a 13-year period of me not writing. So I didn't know who I was or who I was going to be as a, as a writer or as a poet or if I would even ever write again. And so um, when I finally reemerged, I it wasn't the same poet. That, that previous poet didn't share his soul. I, I was very esoteric, but I didn't really let people into sure. into to find out who I was. Um, as far as performing, love performing, um, it, I, I love performing. I'm more married to the paper, though. You know, that's the most important thing to me is the words. Um, but performing is actually. From a writing standpoint, um, what was there a catalyst to, to breaking out of that of that mode of uh, being a little esoteric, being a little uh, kind of hiding? Uh, you, you know what I'm saying? Like within the the verse you're writing, uh, was there a key uh, in in your life or creatively that kind of got you uh, out of there and uh, into what you want to be doing? Uh, I, I, I internalized everything. I stopped writing because of because of bad, you know, death in the family. I lost my mom and my sister like within six months of each other. So, hence not writing. I didn't want to deal with it. And 
13 years, that culminates. You know, that all, that it's, it's got to come out. So, so all this, all those years, I was internalizing. I was taking things in, and once it, it came, once it started to come out, it, that was it. Thank you Thank so you. much for being here. That was fantastic. Um, thanks, everybody. Um, we're going to take a, a little a little respite of about, uh, oh, yeah, uh, about four minutes or so, three or four minutes uh, before we, we close with uh, Aaron Puchigian. Uh, Pooch, Chigian. Chigian. Pooch, Chigian. Right, yeah, yeah. Uh, thanks, everybody. Uh, yeah, you know, grab the tray, grab the convo, and about 3 3 3 we'll, we'll close it out, guys. Thanks, thanks for being here this afternoon.
We are back. This is um, Kashi's on the sound. My friend's Kashi Otani. He's a jazz, uh, jazz musician. Very, very cool guy. I don't know why I'm holding my phone. Because why am I holding my phone? Because, yeah, self-explanatory, I suppose. All right. Um, Aaron Puchigian earned a PhD in classics from the University of Minnesota and an MFA in poetry from Columbia University. His first book of poetry, The Cosmic Purr, was published in 2012 by Able Muse Press. And his second book, Manhattanite, which won the Able Muse Poetry Prize, came out in 2017. His third book, American Divine, won the Richard Wilbur Award and will come out in 2020. His thriller in verse, Mr. Either Or, was released by Extrusion uh, Press in the fall of 2017. His work has appeared in such publications as Best American Poetry, The Parish Review, and Poetry. And I just want to add uh, that he has copies of his work uh, at that table back there, uh, so you can procure yourself that uh, following the reading. Uh, thanks for being here, Aaron. Come on. Thank you very much, Matt. Um, I'm excited to have, yeah, be reading here with um, Donald and Prince, and um, I'm excited for Matt. This is the one-year anniversary. Oh, yeah. Um, Thank you very much. So, dear pal, reading um, I'm also excited to be reading on the stage where I've seen so many great poets and also heard so many great bands. I'm tempted to get on the trap set back there um, and pound something out, but instead I'm going to read some poems. Um, and so this, I, like most people in America, played in bands when I was a kid. Um, and so this is imagining that band getting together now that we're older. Um, it's a poem called Reunion Show. Remember rage, the way we used to love it, and what mad masks we wore when we began. Think of the shrieking eagle on our van, the decal with its wings aflame, and our prophetic name, the downward spiral, the viral expansion of it. The perks and packed arenas before the groupies got between us. The label dropped us and the fad wound down. <laughs> Boys, since this bar is in a nowhere town, let's pound out 
with our amps cranked up to ten. Sincerer tribute to the angry art than we could handle at our start. The blasphemy we hurled against the world back then was out of season. Now we have damn good reason to smash things up like ruined men. And all my lyrics will be from the heart. I lived in Salt Lake City, Utah, and for some reason I've been thinking a lot about that lately. When I flew back here after the holidays from California, I stopped in Salt Lake City. Um, yes, um, and I had a girlfriend there, um, and we broke up. Um, but this is from when we were still together, and I read a story about the Large Hadron Collider in France that smashes atoms together, and scientists had created a black hole. And I was briefly terrified that there was a black hole here on Earth. We survived. It's called Matter. It's a love poem about a black hole. Um, <laughs> Darling, in France, some crank has whipped up a black hole under glass, and I worry. What if he slipped up? I mean, one blunder, one mischance, and the world will be sorry. Will one vast gullet suck the clock tower sideways and pull it out of time? Will police headquarters lose all power at the end of crime? Will ecstatic reporters somehow contrive to capture on tape the rapid advance of the rapture live? Will nothing escape, not even light? Somewhere in France, it is not even night. Sooner or later, for better or worse, a recreator will stop and reverse motion, revamp lab and lamp, earth, sun, and moon, possibly soon. Alive tonight in Utah, dear, with candlelight, and an atmosphere. I hope my affection will never shatter or shift direction. May such things matter. Mm. Moving across the nation now from Utah to Ohio, um, where uh, driving through Ohio, I saw it was very it was. You know, it was kind of boring, frankly, I'll be honest. Um, and suddenly I saw this colossal windmill with its three arms. Um, and I actually pulled over and started writing this poem about it. It's called Divertimento. There had been no attraction, no surprise, for 50 miles, just crows, Holsteins, and stubble. And now, atop the only local rise, like an ungatherable iron flower, this looky here, wind turbine. Sure, it turns a hair harassing day to zaps that routed eastward, power urban transit, say, or crab canneries further up the coast. But in this yawner of a bronze age now, among the ruminants, what matters most is just like
freaking wow. Bravissimo for the kinetic sculpture dangling upward from a snag of earth while juggling with acquiescent rapture three arms worth of gale force wind. Oh yeah, I want to be that gleam with crazy feelers going round. Thank you, Ohio, for reminding me how art should astound. This is kind of a sexy one. I don't know. Um, it's about um, Herod, the, um, and uh, it's from the Bible, and it involves um, his stepdaughter Salome and the dance that she did for him, now known as the dance of the seven veils. She did it for him on his birthday as a birthday gift, and asked, as you probably know, um, in return for John the Baptist's head on a platter. It's called. Happy birthday, Herod. <laughs> like always, Herod's birthday is today. And I can hear the tambourine brioso. I can hear the oboe skirl. Like always, Salome is getting down to business, veil by veil. Her eyes are green, all other eyes, obscene ravishers of a writhing girl are piercing what is see-through anyway. <laughs> like always, without fail, something repulsive has been done. Under the Dead Sea sun, another sort of flesh, that corpse, I mean, the headless one, is summoning the blowflies fresh gratification for a mother's grudge. Like always, who am I to judge? Indifferent to whatever moral thing a servant might be carrying around the party on a tray, I stand with stiff voyeurs, devouring those curves of hers, worshipping the elastic, the orgastic <laughs> Salome. Forgive me. Herod's birthday is today. <laughs> Thank you very much. I just have three more poems. Um, two depressing ones and one slightly less depressing. <laughs> Um, this is a poem, um, actually I dreamed, um, I briefly lived in California, I um, inherited a farmhouse, um, which I've since subsequently passed on to other members of my family because I don't want it, I'm a New Yorker, um, but I had briefly a lanai, like you know the fancy kind of patio that was covered um, on the edge of the town of Fresno, California, and I fell asleep there, um, as one does on a lanai, and I had this dream. It's called Hush Now. Soon as the shift to darkness in the sky left me alone to my own dark lanai, I must have slipped off somewhere wild, since wan and long-haired, with a cowgirl flannel on, this chick was crooning like a lullaby, lyrics about the whole world gone awry. 
Hush, little pretty, hush there, there. Day is done and night has won and ending times is everywhere. Don't cry, don't cry. Ten years of drought, the plow is rust, the harvest dust, there's nothing left to fret about. Wolves long ago got through the fold, circled the fold, and as of old, done massacred the innocents. It's peaceful now. The mockingbird that trilled before don't sing no more. Papa's been gone for months, no word. Hush, little pretty, hush, there, there. Day is done, and night has won, and ending times is everywhere. She blew a kiss, dissolved, and there was dawn, smog red, a credible phenomenon. Steel mesh immured, buzz, buzz, a frantic fly. World sirens were approaching. Hush by. I'd like to, um, yeah, just two more. Um, this is a poem um, called American Osiris, um, about um, the god Osiris who dies and then is rejuvenated annually. Um, American Osiris. Dead God, dead God, come alive on the count of number five. One, two, three, four. I sense dejection in the vegetation. I get how red a sun is going down. And there they go, the dogs all over town, howling like widows. Ambush, mutilation, dump sites across state lines. The deed is done. Street lights will keep on burning all night long in memory of you, the youth, the strong seed giver, the delight, the vital one. It's useless, but I want to strew funeral flowers, the orchid, the iris, traffic on the avenue is sighing for the loss of you, American Osiris. I smell the crime. In Jersey, there's a scow tugging like rubbish, your indignant liver up the Passaic post-industrial river. And all the sap in you has turned crude now and soaks from ruptured pipes into the prairie. Your sex is wild boars goring Arkansas. Who axed you? Handsome, who has dumped you raw on this democracy, this cemetery? Sorrow has spread from coast to coast like a saccharine song or seasonal virus. You are what weighs on us the most. Darling and carcass, god and ghost, American Osiris. Dead God, dead God, come alive on the count of number five. 
one, two, three, four. I'm going to finish with a slightly more upbeat poem. Um, thank you. Um, long ago, I wrote songs for a cabaret. Um, for my friends who lived in the Twin Cities, the Cirque Rouge Cabaret. Um, and this is a song I wrote called The Queen of France. It is in a female voice, and so I've got to get my drag on. All right, there I am. Um, um, yes, um, The Queen of France, it's a song. The back lot was a royal garden. Dolls made up my court. The pretty ones were granted pardon. The ugly hanged for sport. Tyrant at ten, I was the glory of soaring tenements, trumpeting on your knees before me. I am the queen of France. Let all chandeliers burst into tears and no stallions prance. It's been 30 years since I was queen of France. Common things broke in like rebels, denying my sovereign right. Riches now are tips on tables and exile the spotlight. Where I pose in rags Parisian, teaching a guttural throng for the pittance of admission. How time did me wrong. Let all chandeliers burst into tears and no stallions prance. It's been 30 years since I was queen of France. Let long gops from the upper tier invade my bustier and lowlife's dangling dollars cheer for my constricted sway. With will unweathered and a manner proud when I come unfurled, I shall remain a brilliant banner and rampart to the world. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right, that's cool. Man. Um, so I, I, I noticed in your in your reading the the, the subject matter is, is highly disparate. It's highly uh, disparate. Yeah. Uh, differentiated. Yeah, um, yeah, no, I understand. And, yeah, yeah, I'm saying more. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying what I'm saying. Um, but the the question which came to me is um, how how does a poet uh, develop a voice uh, where in a chapbook or full-length book, they pull the reader through all these different stories, traveling through time, or your personal experiences, and there's there's a voice that we can hear being here, which is part of the reason why I love having poets here, uh, there's a singular voice coming through all the poems. So how what, how, how did that come about for you, um, developing that voice, which could do all this different stuff, essentially? Yeah, thank you for asking. No. Um, I, for years, was interested in only in poetry from the past, and I had a hard time connecting with contemporary poetry. Um, and so I would read to the poets that I adored in Greek and Latin and in English, and I would steal 
Um, I guess I'm going to use this analogy. Are you guys familiar with funny cars? Right? Like racing cars you make together out of a bunch of different parts. Like each poet has his or her own funny car, right? And you want to build the fastest, coolest, funny car that you can build. The problem is that other, not all parts are compatible with it, right? right? right, right. Um, and so you go through the early years when you're trying to figure out what you, when you're building your funny car, trying to figure out what is going to fit into the engine or on the outside of this car that you are building. And mostly for me, originally, it was poets from the past. And then, and this is part of the reason I went to get an MFA, um, I was forced in the MFA to confront the 21st century to say, you need to stop, you need to drop all of your affectations. You need to stop being archaic in any way and be radically contemporary. And I knew it was going to hurt, and it hurt, um, but it was very good for me. And it um, allowed me to, yes, make my 21st century, my, my, my funny car, into a 21st century vehicle. That's an awesome answer. And it actually reminds me, um, when I was in a playwriting class, as a uh, trying to write everything with uh, uh, five scenes and five acts, like, like Shakespeare. And uh, my, my teacher was like, you have to get out more. <laughs> Please get out more. <laughs> no, I understand. I want you to say One last thing. Um, I found in the lines, and in a lot of the lines, there's such a lyrical uh, quality, whether it was uh, the way the words uh, kind of crashed together or congealed together or, um, or rhymed. Um, so I was wondering if your background in music uh, still informs you uh, while you're writing poetry. It does very much. I was sitting and trying to write earlier today and it did not go very well. But I realized, in terms of my process, um, that I don't... Um, my, one of my favorite poet, poets, Auden, says he needs, in order to just get writing, he needs a theme and a form. And then he can just go, right? And I, I would like to be like that, but I'm afraid I'm not. I'm not. What I need rather is a musical phrase. I need a sound or a musical motif in order to get started. And then I can start crystal, it can crystallize from there. Um, and so um, I do start um, with music and I um, am very interested in the aural that is performing for the ear um, rather than um, exclusively for the page yeah. as well. So it starts and ends with music. That, that's awesome. And like the awesome thing, I, I'm a songwriter. And uh, that inspiration can come in so many different forms. It can be like a shape in your head uh, for me uh, sometimes, or it can be a, a place a lot of times. It's a place, but then you don't really write about the place. You write about how you feel when you were there. It kind of opens the place up. But awesome. Thank you very much for being here. Uh, thanks, everybody. Um, yes, this was our one-year anniversary. and. Uh, this has been a great experience uh, for me hosting this, and uh, I'm looking to continue it. Uh, you know, uh, you know, like keep it going, basically. Um, so yeah, we'll be here again next month. Uh, I believe that's the first of uh, February, and uh, looking forward to that. And uh, enjoy your day, and thank you for spending some of your day here. Uh, and thank you again to our readers; uh, they were terrific. Uh, thanks, guys. Uh, have a great afternoon. Yes, uh...